Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're studying the life of Abraham, God's BFF. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. A little bit of overlap from uh, last week as we move forward into the life of Abraham. The topic this morning, Abraham begins his lifelong pilgrimage in response to God's calling. The title of our message, God's Pilgrim versus the World. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, these ancient men, these patriarchs, these fathers of the faith, they live in situations and circumstances that, that are so foreign to us. Lord, I, don't, I don't know that even with a, 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 a description or a picture, Lord, we'd, we'd know exactly what it was like to live at that time and, and to wander through that world and, and all. Um, and yet, Lord, when we read these texts, they speak to us as if they were written about us in the 21st century. And that's because you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Circumstances change, surroundings change, technology uh, advances, comfort is furthered, but the essential spiritual aspect of life, Lord, it, it's always the same. It's, it's a man seeking after God, you seeking after men, and then the learning, Lord, of what it is to, to walk with you and to know you and to be used of you. And we get all that from Abraham and more. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would guide and direct us, of course, by your Holy Spirit into things that are needful for us to hear so that we would draw close to you. You've called us your friends. We want to uh, learn about that friendship, Lord, and experience it and the joy of it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1678 when John Bunyan found himself in the Bedfordshire County Jail. He was breaking the law which prohibited the holding of religious services outside of the authority of the Church of England. Bunyan put pen to parchment and he began to write. The result was the book, Pilgrim's Progress, whose formal title is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. It is regarded as one of the most significant works of English literature. It's been translated into more than 200 languages. It's never been out of print. Pilgrim's Progress follows the main character called Christian as he journeys from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Along the way, he visits such locations as the Slough of Despond, which I think is right up here. But anyway, no, that's Muscle Slough. That's right. Uh, Vanity Fair, The Doubting Castle, and The Valley of the Shadow of Death. Characters in the book include Obstinate, Pliable, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Much Afraid, Mr. Ready to Halt, and Mr. Stand Fast. It's obviously an allegory of the Christian life. You are Christian. You are the pilgrim journeying through life to paradise. How should I approach life as a pilgrim? Well, there's no better example of the pilgrim on his way to paradise than Abraham. We may as well learn from the best. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you must look beyond his promises to the promiser. And number two, you must look beyond your pilgrimage to paradise. Let's take a look beyond the promises first in verses one through four. 
There's a famous exhortation pastors sometimes quote that says, are you standing on the promises or just sitting on the premises? It's a reminder that we are a people who live by the promises God has made us. According to one person's count, there are 3,573 promises in the Bible. I don't know how many there are. I don't know how do you arrive at a, a, a number like that. I do know this, and so do we all. A promise is only as good as the one making the promise. We're coming into an election year in 2012. We're going to hear a lot of promises. We already know most of them will be broken. We expect that. On a more personal level, you and I have broken our promises to others. Maybe we didn't intend to, but we have. And folks have broken their promises to us. The key to promises is the trustworthiness of the one doing the promising. In our case, it's God, the creator of heaven and earth. We can stand on his promises because God is the promiser. As important as it is to stand on God's promises, there's something even more important, or there's something more, I guess I should say. Abraham looked beyond the promises behind them to God. He went out as a pilgrim not because of what he would gain, but on account of who he was going with. Indeed, as we follow his life through, we'll see that he gained very little other than the knowledge of a relationship with God. Verse 1. Now the Lord has said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Abram, of course, is Abraham. God's going to change his name in just a little bit to reflect the promises that he makes to Abram. We talk often about the new glorified bodies we're going to have after the resurrection and the rapture of the church when we are in heaven. Do you realize that you will also receive a new name in heaven? So maybe if you like your name, sorry. If you don't like your name, this is going to be your big chance. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. And so the Lord seems to be saying that in heaven we're going to receive a new name. I wonder if I already have my new name waiting for me, or if it's something that's being formed as I cooperate with the Lord along my pilgrim path homeward. Looking back on my life, will I be Mr. Ready to Halt or will, be, will I be Mr. Stand Fast? It's interesting. I mean, it's kind of facetious, so we don't know what it's going to be like. But, you know, as we have our uh, meeting with Jesus Christ there at the reward seat of Christ after we're resurrected and raptured, I wonder if the last thing he does is give us our new name. And, and hopefully it's something cool. You know, I, I, mean, I wouldn't want to go through eternity as, hey, hey, there's Mr. Ready to Halt. Every step along the way in his Christian walk, he just, you know, turned sideways. I, I would rather be Mr. Standfast. And so it's, it's just an interesting thing. Uh, no use asking the Lord what your new name is. He's not going to tell you. I sort of think that it's still being formed. I really do. He knows what it is because he sees the end of our life. Uh, but we, uh, from our perspective, can contribute to it. Now, we assume God appeared to Abraham as the angel of the Lord, which was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ to men before he was sent to earth as the God-man. We learn later that Abraham believed God and he was saved. God declared him righteous. 
It's how everyone has always been saved, by grace through faith in the Lord. Jesus didn't come and give him the Ten Commandments or tell him what laws to obey and all of that. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, it was accounted to him as his righteousness. God declared him righteous. Told specifically to get out of your country from your family and from your father's house, Abraham only partially obeyed. He took his family and settled short of the promised land. Here in chapter 12, five years have elapsed since that initial call to salvation and that calling to leave. God was patient with the man he would later call his friend forever. Now take a look at the first promise we encounter. He says there was a land that God would show to Abraham. If I'm Abraham, I'm thinking, what do you mean show? What, what, what's the word show got to do with this? Isn't God going to give Abraham the land? Yeah, but he only promised to show it to him at first. Still, Abraham set out. I suggest to you that Abraham from the start was captivated with God himself, with the one making the promises rather than the promises. He set out as a pilgrim on a lifelong pilgrimage because it was God he was going with. God said, I want you to get away from everything that's familiar to you and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham did. Indeed, the New Testament, Abraham is, in the New Testament, Abraham is described as looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. The land of promise, per se, never excited him the way that future city did. That's not to take anything away from the reality and the importance of God giving Abraham the land that we know today as Israel, or giving it to his descendants, that is. God was calling Abraham to leave both family and familiarity behind. Did he do it for real estate? Did he do it for livestock? For the prospects of being prospered? Was this a, a, a wise move for him? Part of a five-year plan or a, lifeline, uh, plan, a lifetime plan? No. He did it because he'd had an encounter with the living God. And he wanted to walk with God. God was making him promises he knew God was trustworthy, even though most of his life he never saw the realization of those promises. It was enough that he was with the Lord. So too with us, we must live by the promises of God by looking beyond them and behind them to the one who promises. Only then can we hope to put into perspective some of the sacrifices along the way. Only then will I, if called upon, leave everything, family and familiarity, in my pilgrimage. A lot of times in helping people make decisions, you know, people say, well, you know, the Lord, uh, I've got this decision in front of me. And we can't help but default to what seems best from a worldly situation. This would be the better job. This is the better environment. This is the better city. This is the better climate. Gosh, I guess none of us would live here then, right? I mean, seriously, you know, and, and we, we want what's best but so often in the Bible, I mean, these guys, uh, if you really look, it, it would have been best for Abraham to just stay in Ur of the Chaldees. It was a modern, thriving city with all of the conveniences of that day. But instead, God said, no, I want you to go be kind of like a Bedouin. I just want you to move from place to place, living in, in tents temporarily. You'll never really own anything. We'll see in a minute what, <laughs> what Abraham did own. It was kind of interesting. 
And Abraham was all for it. He was down for it because it was God who was promising. He said, I just want to be with you. You're going to take me someplace and show me something. Let's go. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. God had a very definite plan in mind for Abraham. He would be the father of the Hebrew people. It's so hard to believe that God's plan for my life is every bit as involved and important as was his plan for Abraham or Moses or David or even the Apostle Paul. God was not closer to Abraham or these other heroes of the faith because their earthly paths seem more important to furthering his kingdom. He's just as intimate with each of his pilgrims as we want him to be. We're all called to different things. We have different assignments. That's fine. But that doesn't translate into the fact that God loves some more than others or spends more time with some more than others because it's up to us how much time God spends with us. He could spend 24 hours a day with us, couldn't he? I don't profess to think that I'm going to ever do anything as profound as Abraham or Moses or David or the Apostle Paul. But I shouldn't care about that, really. We do care about that. We want our life to count for something. We want to make a difference. And that's okay in its own sphere and dimension. But all of that has got to be stripped away when we're dealing with the Lord. And we think, Lord, you're, you're enough for me. You're sufficient for me. My relationship with you is what this is all about. And if this is all you want me to do, and it can be contained here, or if this is all you want me to do, it's all you and it's all the same spirit and it really doesn't matter. I don't really care what the world thinks anyway. In fact, you know, it becomes dangerous. The, the more the world thinks of you, the more they scrutinize you, the, the bigger your, uh, your accomplishments are and your ministry is. It's not always what it's cracked up to be. And so Abraham, yeah, sure he had a lot to do. He was going to be the father of the Jewish nation. He was going to be the father of the faithful. He's going to be the example that Paul uses in the New Testament of what it means to be a Christian. But God loves you and I just as much. Don't confuse God's plan for you with his passion for you as his friend. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what we call a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. Though Abraham would come, excuse me, through Abraham would come Jesus Christ, who would bless all the families of the earth by providing mankind with a universal offer of salvation for the universal problem of sin. Also tucked away in this promise is the understanding that Abraham's descendants, the Hebrew people, would be at the center of world politics. God would and he will judge all other nations based on their relationship with Israel. And we see that unfolding uh, more than ever in the day and age in which we live. Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. After a five-year delay and at the age of 75, Abraham set out to fulfill his calling. Right now, Right where you are, you can move forward in your walk with the Lord. If you've been moving forward, you can continue. If you've been standing still, you can start moving forward again. If you've been backslidden, you can start moving forward. The Bible says in the New Testament, if you are faithless, God remains faithful. And so, uh, you know, forgetting the past, press on to the prize of the high calling 
in Jesus Christ. God's promises are great in and of themselves, but beyond them is a revelation of God himself, his nature, his character, his passion for intimacy with you. He's given you things and he's going to give you more things, but his real delight is showing things to you. It's being with you to see the expression of your heart at the revelation of himself. Yesterday, the ladies had their secret sister reveal. You should have seen the expression on their faces when the time came to open the envelope and find out who had been blessing them the past nine months. The whole room went crazy with a spiritual energy I'm not used to. I, I, I did a duck and cover under the sound table. It was crazy. Everybody opened their envelope and said, oh! And they started running across the room to find their secret sister. And, and, and you know what? It, it wasn't a matter of the fact that, that they had gotten a gift or five gifts or ten gifts or anything like that. It was a, a, just a sense of, of knowing that person, of, 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 of seeing that person's heart, of blessing that person or being blessed by it. It was that expression as it were. God is blessing you daily as you stand on His promises. But in each of them, in each of the promises of God, there's a kind of reveal of who God really is that should overshadow the promise itself. God has gone to great lengths to show you something about Himself, to show you His countenance, His love, His grace, those kinds of things. And that's why it's so sad. You know, oftentimes in my life... I feel like, you know, God has promised me something, but I, I misunderstand exactly how it's going to unfold. Uh, you know, these, I can't, maybe it's just me, but I think all of us are in this boat. We, we think so much in, in material terms, you know, when God promises us something, it's always a better house, a better car, a better job, a better something. Uh, you know, we, and, and even if God doesn't directly, I mean, God's never come to me and said, Gene, I'm going to give you that Corvette you want. He's never said that, but I still think, you know, whenever he is going to prosper me that, yeah, that's, I'm going to go out in my garage one day and my Scion XB is going to have become a Corvette Stingray, no less. But anyway, you know, and so then if I don't get the Stingray, I'm kind of disappointed but really, whatever it is that God did for me and in fulfilling a promise to me, he's showing me something about himself. And that's that's where the promise works. That's what these promises are really about. It's in the reveal. It's not in the thing that's going to, you know, burn up and uh, be in a trash heap one day. And so that's, I think, what Abraham understood. God is blessing you daily as you stand on his promises. But in each of them, look for the reveal. Now, in verses 5 through 9, you must look beyond your pilgrimage to paradise. Pilgrim is one of those words that's loaded with images for us. I can't help but think of a guy dressed all in black with a big hat with a buckle on it. There's a turkey in there somewhere about to become Thanksgiving dinner. And then a little farther back in my image is a boat docked. It's the Mayflower. And so that's my idea of what it means to be a pilgrim. Those are the symbols I associate with that word. Either that or John Wayne movies. In the 1962 classic, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, John Wayne used the word pilgrim 23 times. When I guess whenever he forgot his line, he says, well, pilgrim, you know, that kind of a thing. Now, the word pilgrim should instead evoke other images for us as believers in Jesus Christ. The symbols of a God pilgrim on a spiritual pilgrimage are two, the altar and the tent. 
Watch for them in these remaining verses and throughout Abraham's life as we continue. Verse 5, Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So this is Abraham 2.0. He may still be traveling with too much baggage, but at least he's moving forward. Charles Swindoll once described this kind of spiritual progress as taking three steps forward for every two steps backward. But you're still, you're still making progress. We all carry too much with us along our pilgrim journey heavenward. Especially here in the West, where we are prosperous in comparison to the rest of the world. But rather than rebuke everybody for being so materialistic, I'd have to rebuke myself, and I don't like doing that, I think it better to simply encourage everyone to move out, to press forward. Because as you serve the Lord, if you're really listening to Him, you're going to come to points where certain baggage needs to be left behind. It just proves too heavy or too costly if you want to keep making spiritual progress. It's between you and the Lord. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. There were some people, lots of them living in the land God was showing Abraham. He'd have to coexist with Canaanites and their barbaric, godless practices. The promised land was not necessarily better. It was where God would reveal himself further and that made it wonderful. Any thought you have that God was taking Abraham to the promised land because it was inherently better, that it had better grazing, more water, nicer people, that it was uh, maybe whatever, wherever you would want to be, that is the, you know, the greatest place in the world for you, where everybody's nice, it's like utopian, the weather or not, that is not the, the thinking of God here in this situation. Abraham had a really difficult life in the promised land. He was comfortable in Ur of the Chaldees. He knew everybody and they knew him and they weren't crazy Canaanites sacrificing children and having fertility rights and living barbaric lives. It was a a very difficult move for him. I think at least once in everybody's life as a Christian, God is going to ask you to do something that's more difficult rather than easier. And that's why we really need the Lord when we're making decisions. Uh, You can yellow pad all your decisions all you want. Should I move to Hanford or Hawaii? Let's do some pros and cons. Let's take a look at the water in both places. Okay, let's, uh, that does it right there, right? I mean, you know, you don't, it's not much of a list. I mean, the truth is, I mean, sometimes that's how we make decisions. You know, the more money, this, and you know, well, I've got this big list of things. If Abraham had done that, he'd still be an Ur of the Chaldees because over on this side would be, I'm living in a tent, uh, I'm all by myself, I don't have any family, crazy Canaanites live in the land, etc., etc. There's no incentive at all for him to move out other than God's calling. If your friends have never thought you a little bit touched, if your family's never thought you were a little bit crazy for following God somewhere or in some way, uh, it's telling. 
Now, we don't do, you know, I'm not talking about just, you know, jumping off the pinnacle of the building to, because God's angels have charge over you. No, but there are times God, God came to Abraham and said, you're doing great here in Ur of the Chaldees. Let's, let's shake things up a bit. You're not really trusting me. I've revealed myself to you, but you don't really know who I am or what I'm all about. So let's head out to the promised land. Let's hang out with the Canaanites. See how we do among those guys. See what I can do for you. The man I can make you among the Canaanites. You probably work with Canaanites. People, you know, same thing when I was working out in the world before I became, uh, before I went into the ministry. You know, it's like, man, these people are Canaanites. These women are from Moab. I mean, they're the Moabite women. They're barely dressed and they're always tempted. And then there's these Canaanite weirdos, you know. And, so, and uh, God, get me out of this job situation. Move me into some... I want to work for Christians. Please, Lord, let me work for Christians. Let, let me live in a Christian city, in a Christian utopia. Let me have no contact with the world whatsoever. Yeah, you're not going to learn much about God there. And, and so... Uh, Don't think that Abraham was going to have a better life. He was going to learn about the Lord. And verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The giving of the land would be to Abraham's descendants. In fact, we're going to see at the end of Abraham's life, the only land he ever owned in the promised land was a family burial plot that he purchased. The only thing he owned was a burial plot. Think about what this meant on a practical level for Abraham. He was being asked, uh, tasked rather with raising a godly offspring in the midst of a godless society. He was being asked to make sacrifices in order for God to bless future generations. And so God's promises, they're not easy. We don't just pull them out of a promise box and then magically possess them. There's a cost involved. There's a sacrifice somewhere along the way that makes these promises really active in our lives. Abraham acknowledged that he understood he was being called to a life of sacrifice by constructing an altar. One commentator noted, it has been said of Abraham that one could trace his paths by the altars he built. There's a lot of things we could say about altars and their significance. If you look at all the altars that were built by Abraham and his descendants, you'll find that they were places of intercession, places of forgiveness, places of worship, places where you encountered God. The constant, of course, is that a blood sacrifice was involved. Altar is translated from a word meaning the place of slaughter. These Old Testament guys sacrificed animals. The sacrifices didn't save them. It harkened back to God sacrificing animals in the Garden of Eden when He promised Adam and Eve He would send a Savior to die to shed His blood that mankind might be saved by believing in that sacrifice. Every lamb that was killed pointed towards the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would one day take away the sins of the world. Now the altar reminded Abraham that his Savior would be the ultimate pilgrim. God would leave heaven for earth. He too would seek, as it were, the city whose builder and maker is God. He would look beyond the suffering of the cross upon which he would offer himself our sacrifice for sin to the joy of the salvation that he could offer us. And so the question personally would be, what or where is our altar? Is it my prayer closet? Is it my devotions? 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. It's a big image, really, a living sacrifice uh, on an altar. Things that got onto the altar didn't live. They were killed. And so Paul's saying, you're like a, a living sacrifice, so something dies so something else might live. My life itself is to be understood as constantly being on an altar as a sacrifice, dying to myself in order to live for God. And so daily I ought to be discovering new ways to die to myself and to live for God. The simple question, what is dying right now, if anything, that I might live unto the Lord? Verse 8, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Another commentator said, it's often said of Abraham and the patriarchs that they built altars to the Lord. It is never said that they built houses for themselves. Indeed, Abraham lived in a tent. The tent is the other outstanding symbol of the pilgrimage. Tent camping can be fun, I'm told. I've, I've spent one or two nights in my life in a tent. One of those, I think, was indoors uh, with grandchildren. But I, I, Tent camping can be fun, but you look forward to a shower and some real comfort. I mean, if you're doing real tent camping, you know, where there isn't amenities. Your whole time as a Christian is one long tent camping trip. You're to be looking forward, looking beyond to your home that is being built even as we speak. There's no real standard of living given to us in the Bible. Do you realize that? It's kind of interesting. We are not called to communal living where everyone has an equal share. And we live in a commune or even just communally. Nor is there value in poverty for its own sake. We're not called upon to take vows of voluntary poverty. The wealthy are warned about the use of their money, but the very warning itself indicates what? There's going to be rich believers. Paul doesn't say, you who are rich, give all your money to the poor. Jesus said that once to the rich young ruler. That was his problem. But when Paul talks about money, he says, hey, if you've got money, just be careful it doesn't have you. And so uh, there's no real standard of living given in the Bible for a Christian. The tent, then, is an attitude I adopt that makes me more interested in heaven than I am in the earth. If I adopt such an attitude, I will want to further the kingdom of God by supporting the work of evangelizing the lost and edifying the saints. I'll make decisions whether I'm living in a commune or whether I'm poor or whether I'm wealthy. I'll make decisions that are consistent with furthering the work of the gospel. And so again, this becomes an individual question that only I can answer for myself and you the same. Whatever my status financially, are my life and my lifestyle choices consistent with giving to further the kingdom of God? Am I making those sacrifices? Uh, could I be looked upon as a person who is living in a tent, as it were? Whether I'm rich or poor, uh, are my decisions consistent with somebody who's a tent camper looking for the city whose builder and maker is God? And so verse 9, so Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. You want it to be said of you that you journeyed going on still. Well, that's a great way. You know, people say, hey, have you, you know, have you run into Gene? Yeah, he's journeying going on still. As opposed to 
Hey, what's going on with Gene? Yeah, he fell away from the Lord. He backslid. Lost his this, lost that. You know, you want to be in the journey going on still. You don't have to be physically moving all the time, but spiritually speaking, you need to be making real progress as a pilgrim on your way home. Are you making real progress? Are we making progress as a church? God, the Holy Spirit, He'll speak to our hearts through this text so that we might ask and honestly answer those questions. Let's do what He shows us, be able to say yes to making pilgrim's progress. Amen? All right.